0: Hi, I'm Bill Schley. I use the ideas from the Microscript Rules to brand many companies. One in particular was Home Financial Network. They named their product Home ATM. Home ATM grew from five persons to a company that had 100 employees and was sold to Sybase, a New York Times public company, for $150 million. You're listening to Action Path, hosted by Steve Cunningham.
1: Who are you and what do you do?
0: Um, my name is Bill Schley. I um I've been asking that question of uh, the psychiatric community for years and years and years. It's a hard, it's not an easy question. Who am I really? But uh, I guess uh, nominally, I I'm, I'm a brand specialist. I've been doing this for, I've been, I started out as a madman working for the real madmen back in, uh, in Madison Avenue, writing TV commercials for things like deodorant and cough drops and hefty trash bags. They're tough enough to overstuff. And I've been in, in marketing and branding my whole career. I started doing it for companies, uh, well, about almost 20 years ago. And I started writing books because when you're a consultant, you have to be smart. You need to have a book to say, look, I wrote a book. I wrote the book. So I guess I'm also an author at this point. I've, I'm a published author several times over. The most recent one's called The Microscript Rules, How to Tell Your Story and Differentiate Your Brand in a Sentence or Less.
1: So That's we're going to get to that book uh, in, a, in a bit. Mm-hmm. And just a fun, quick backstory for uh, the listeners. So mm-hmm. I, when I started in my, my business, I decided I didn't want to do signage manufacturing for the rest of my life so I decided to start a marketing agency and I went to the bookstore and I just looked for any book that I could find that might help me in a presentation that I had on Monday morning this was a Saturday and I just happened to pick up it was about it was a branding uh, RFP I think and I picked the book Johnny can't brand closed a $75,000 deal (laughs) and boom I'm in a a marketing business and I learned later that after you wrote the book on stoppables and I interviewed you on the podcast for that book, that you were the author of Johnny Cam Brand. And that right. book, uh, written in conjunction with Graham Weston, who is no
0: Well The Unstoppables was written with Graham. Yes. Right. Yeah, and it was and the original was Why Johnny Can't Brand, which was a play on Why Johnny Can't Read, which was a famous book, you know, about education in the fifties.
1: Yeah. Yep. And so uh, kind of the vortex opened, and here we both are in San Antonio, Texas, mm-hmm. recording this interview. So I owe a big debt of gratitude to you uh, for starting my journey in the marketing world and leading me down this crazy path down here to San Antonio, Texas. So we're, we're going to go on a Brilliant. wide-ranging journey here today, but I want to start back at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, where did you grow up?
0: I grew up in Boston, Massachusetts, and when I say that, I'm going to start having a Boston accent pretty soon, just by saying it. But I grew up in the Boston area. Um, I went to school there. I went to college there. Um, Boston's a, a lot different than Texas. As a matter of fact, in Boston, they you, you grew up thinking that Texas was a foreign country, which it is. Um, and eventually, I wanted to do two things when I graduated from college. I wanted to be a jet pilot or a rock and roll star. So I went to get my pilot's license. I did accomplish that um, uh, in about two months. but And I realized I was never going to be a jet pilot because I had glasses in those days. That was a problem. They didn't tell me before I started that. And then, So then I decided I was going to see if I could be a rock and roll star. I wrote some songs. I spent about three years. Um, we used to play gigs and things. And I was going to be like James Taylor or something. And I found out that I was never going to do that either. <laughs> I realized that anything you try anything you do anything you endeavor we always say daring pays dividends you always come away from it with something and so I had adventures and great experiences the one thing I thought I could do was write TV commercials because I'd always liked them since I was the littlest kid I remember Mr. Clean I can tell you they don't even have these products anymore you ever have a, Ipana toothpaste never Okay, I was five. It goes, brush up, brush up, brush up uh, with the new eye pan uh, and the minty flavor. It's better for your teeth. <laughs> this is what I thought about. And the reason why having a beaver was so because beavers have those big buck teeth. So it was a great guy for, for, that's how they used to do commercials. So I put together a spec book. You asked, I'm going to tell you the story. I put together a spec book, which is what the way you got a job in advertising. And people told me it was going to take me Oh, it could take me two years to get a job in New York as a copywriter, and everybody wanted to do that. And um, and they have, you know, go take courses and all kinds of things and submit these spec books. Well, I wrote this spec book and I went around and I got a job in three weeks. I think it's because I networked. I, I got one guy to see it. He liked it. Uh, he thought it was pretty good, didn't have a job. And I just said, That's great, sir. You know, do you know anybody else that maybe. I could talk to that you might recommend. Pick up the phone, call up like the creative director at Amorati and Purist and say, I got a guy sitting here. Yeah, he's got a pretty good book. Why don't you see him? Bang. Three weeks later, I had a job. And I learned that, you know, all the stuff in my spec book had nothing (laughs) to do with advertising. But I had one good ad in there. I used to have a book called Italy on Five Bucks a Day. Uh, It was a famous book. Like kids going to Europe always... Uh, Europe I say Europe on five bucks a day right so I had an ad for Butoni Ravioli and it was a little kid holding up a plate of ravioli it said Italy on 25 cents a day and the creative director at Ted Bates which was we learned was the greatest advertising agency ever saw it and he said okay I like that one there it was
1: and bang you're That's in, how it started in the madman era in the thick of it
0: well, I was, you know, if, by that time, if, if any of you Mad Men watchers out there, look at in Mad Men, they were all drinking, smoking, and you knew they were going to die sometime. Well, they started dying quickly. It was like Calcutta in the morning, dead advertising guys all over the place, and they'd sweep them up like they do in India. That's how bad it was. But because they drunk themselves to death and smoked to death, but they were, boy, were they good at, at selling. They were, they invented those taglines that are people remember 75 years later. I mean, you know, like melts in your mouth, not in your hand. That kind of advertising. So that's where I, I learned from those guys.
1: Well, you're, you're a pretty good storyteller. So <laughs> why why don't you tell us your favorite story from your mm. Mad Men experience?
0: Oh, okay. That, remember, this is not... I don't have time to think about this. My favorite story from those days... There aren't that many that I can tell. I, was I mean, gonna say we're gonna—we're gonna, we're gonna have to not, keep it you know, PG. You got to remember that I—I I was a cub, I was a junior, so it wasn't like um, you know I was going out and being squired around on business jets and things. It could have been a time that frolic. We were at lunch, and they really had two two martini lunches in those days. It might have been the time that Bob Froelich, who was a legendary advertising uh, guy, we were one of some fancy, like Lutetia, very fancy French, or Le Cote Basque. These are the fanciest French restaurants. The Clients would always come down because it was a junket for the clients. They'd come down to from Rochester, New York. They had no reason to come for a meeting, but they were going to get taken around by the ad guys uh, for free. So we were there, and they had some... Um, <laughs> they had some <laughs> dessert... And on on the dessert tray, uh, they had these lemon tarts, these beautiful, incredible lemon tarts. And they had this chocolate mousse. And and the waiters came out and they read what it was. You know, it had seventeen different ingredients and the French accents. And then Froelich said, "Okay, I want the lemon tart, and then I want to give me that chocolate mousse. Give me a scoop of that. Put it right on top." And the waiter practically fainted. He couldn't, and and he had to call the manager out, and they had to call. Uh, see, I'm going to get into a bad word here, but anyway, they they finally so the, he finally got that thing, but that's that's kind of like I don't know if that's a great story, but it was a funny story. See, it was basically just give me the F and moose on top, okay? <laughs> and but the other good thing was that they had three martini lunches, but that was the end of the day, so they went home. And they slept. They had offices with couches in them, and they felt it passed out and they slept the afternoon. Secretaries were taking notes and doing everything, but they still created the greatest ads of all time. So, so a
1: half day of work and creating the greatest ads of all time.
0: Uh pretty much. If Frohlich would walk out, Follick would prance out of there. He'd come in. He'd get in about ten thirty in the morning. He'd leave about four p.m. And you know, we'd be always working overtime because we were the juniors and stuff. And I'd say, oh. Hey, Bob, so you're taking, I would say, he just say, you know, Schley, if you can't do it between ten thirty and four in the afternoon, you can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he was a, he was the funniest guy in the world. He wanna you know, if, if people remember Madge the manicurist when, when, when the lady was soaking at the manicurist and soaking in palm oil of liquid because it softens hands while you do dishes. Frola came up with those lines. And and the whole thing with Madge soaking your hands in the, and Madge would say, you're soaking in it. You know, and the woman would, it's okay, it's mad. Uh, He did Vapor Action. He came up with Get a Little Closer for Arid Extra Dry. They were just, but what they believed, see what Froelich believed was that anybody could do a silly, tell a silly story about a silly subject like you see on these commercials. Anybody can do entertainment. And uh, he would say, you can put a bear in a pink tutu on the roof of your house, smoking a cigarette and dancing a jig, and the whole the whole town's going to come out and see the bear dancing on the roof of your house in the pink tutu. But it doesn't mean anyone's going to buy the house. He said anybody can write a- entertainment, anyone. But he said our job is to make that product, that denture cream. I don't care what it is, that cigarette, that that loaf of bread, the most to make that the most interesting thing in that thirty seconds to make it dramatically interesting that's hard that's what we do but if we do it right it's the most creative thing in the world because it moves markets and he had done it so it's not as fun and glamorous as as, as some kind of but you start to believe how powerful an idea it was what they called an idea an idea was what an idea was a difference all, and they and they said that the idea is the biggest thing you can you can do is come up with an idea. They, so they meant a difference. They meant a unique selling proposition where you stood for something that nobody else did. And they did that over and over again. They sold more they sold more products than anybody else in the history of agencies.
1: So I think that's a good segue into, what we're going to be talking about today is the book. What are we talking about today? I, I don't know. What uh, podcast is this? Because I, I, I mean, uh, I got so many podcasts. I lemon, lemon tarts. Uh, is this the travel? It's is the this travel news, it's the travel podcast? I do Chocolate don't... news podcast. Oh, oh, a oh, cooking. Uh, cooking. That's right, cooking. I like cooking. French cooking. Uh huh. So you talked about the USP, the unique selling proposition, yep. which I know is the the genesis for mm-hmm. uh, the microscript rules. So talk right. to me a little bit about when you came up with this idea. Which are uh, microscript rules, and what was going on in your in your business or your life at the at that yeah. time? Yeah,
0: well, it is kind of interesting. Huh? Um, so the USP, the unique selling proposition, which is what Ross Reeves came up with and introduced in his legendary book in the '60s, and was the basis for everything they did at Ted Bates and all those great taglines was that one idea stood for. So we wrote the the Why Jenny can Brand, which was the first real marketing book that I I wrote. It was um, we call it the dominant selling idea, and we were we were. You know, very, very upfront about the fact that it, it, it it's, it's, it is the USP. But we call it a dominant selling idea because to try to update it a little bit and because there's other dimensions of it that we're going to talk about. So, But it was the same thing. It was dominant, meaning it's the one thing that you have that you own. It's, it had to be an idea, but it had to be a selling idea, which is a very special kind of idea. It's an idea that says superlative, important, believable, memorable, and ownable. That's what that idea is. If it, if, it, if it meets all those tests, it's that thing you can stand for. So why Johnny Cant brandt What What we got at Ted Bates was... You, they didn't really teach you. They had it. You sort of had to learn on your own. You were kind of on your own. They were occasionally. They'd say these great things. Like they'd say something like, "If you have nothing to say, sing it." They'd say they come in and say, um, uh, "Paint me a picture. Tell me a story. Little things like that." They they talked about the power of story. Somebody once said, "You know, you can tell somebody." If uh, take two hours to tell everything everybody about your product, every feature and benefit and they'll forget it in, in 10 minutes, but tell a man a story and he'll repeat it word for word 20 years later. You know, these little snippets of wisdom and then you'd watch what they did and you sort of absorbed it. But they never there's never a book I wanted I want I wish there was a book that I, they could have given me. So it wasn't just that it's good to have a dominant selling idea. It really tried to break down, analyze what that really was and how you could really find yours. So that's what the book was about. And it was a pretty good book. And I, I'll tell you, it won an award. It was given out to all the copywriters at J. Walter Thompson for a while. It was, um, you know, I'm proud of that. Um, and then it was time to write another book a few years later. What was coming, what happening was the, the Great Recession in 2008. And everybody was scared especially consultants because consultants and, you know, and agencies are the first ones that they fire. And, um, so I was going to write a book called, uh, war room marketing about what you, the reason that you need, why marketing is more important than ever. The brand is more important than ever but you, but you, you can't stop doing it, but you've got to be very, very, um, sort of hyper focused and efficient in getting that brand, but it's more important than ever in a down economy. Third, chapter was called microscripts about these little we realized in the election a few years before that that the republicans were coming up with these little scripts that they would give people that they could say and that people love saying them so they came up with it. remember they called john Kerry the flip-flopper george bush said he's a flip-flopper it stucks to him so bad They never got rid of that. And then they had other little epithets that they stuck to them. And then they had other little scripts like Compassionate Conservative. But the Republicans were so good at giving their supporters these little memorable scripts that they could remember and repeat. And I was on a radio show, actually, with my friend. I was on about politics. And he said, you know what they're doing? They're giving these people these little scripts. It's a a two-word script, but it's still a little script. And now Bubba can go down to the bar in Biloxi and, and, and it and can have a, and it can, and it can sound intelligent. You say, I'm voting for no flip flopper. So and then we realize not only doing that, but we also realize that when they when they were branding things and coming up with that dominant selling idea, it might be for Timex watch. Our idea is we are the toughest watch. That's what they were, the toughest affordable watch. But people don't remember strategy. They remember these wonderful little pieces of wordplay. It's how our brains think. And I did a little studying of neuroscience and I realized that there's a reason people love little rhymes. There's a reason they love a little, little because it sticks in the brain. And that's how we're taught as little children. So we realized that these great taglines were little microscripts. And that was the missing piece of our whole doctrine. That little microscript meant you could come up with a dominant selling, it's a tough watch. But then that little memorable tagline was takes a licking and keeps on ticking. And you can say, Hey, Las Vegas is the adult, um, you know, the adult entertainment capital of the world. There's an idea, but the thing that people remember and repeat is what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And this is how this is how it works because that's how our brains work. It's actually brain speak. And so we realized that that was the book needed to be about microscripts. It's not what people hear. It's what they repeat. That was the original tagline. And then when I redid the book a few years later because we learned so much, I actually changed it to how to tell your story and differentiate your brand in a sentence or less.
1: Let's uh, let's move on to – we're, we're going to talk about <laughs> – And that's enough for Bill. That's enough for Bill. We, okay. We've hit our allotted time and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Now, now we must move on. Yes. Let's talk about a specific instance and in when you've applied this mm. and let's dive into a story because I think uh, yeah. that's going to be really helpful for people as they're wrestling with – Mm-hmm. You know, obviously what they're thinking about right now is what's what's my dominant selling idea and what's my microscript. Right. So let's and, talk about how you applied it with one of your clients and okay. the journey you went and
0: through. And let me let me just say there was one thing that influenced me a lot was when and by the way, when you say these things, you just can say half the microscript and people will always repeat the other half. Your, your brain has an unlimited capacity to remember these. Um, the OJ trial, when, when Johnny Cochran said, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. Now, that, that is a, it's eight words, I think it is. It, it absolutely, it erased nine months worth of testimony in those days. It's everybody, the world remembers it 20 years later. And what he's, what uh, Johnny Cochran said to the jury is, look, um, OJ was framed. It doesn't matter what they say. You know, the cops made it up. It was fake news. They made it up. Um, we, when we were, so you can use microscripts. It's tagline. Use microscripts to um, teach with whatever you, uh, the Navy SEALs use them to remember in battle when there's no time to think. Pilots, I fly planes. Pilots have a whole series of microscripts because it, you don't, if you remember the microscript, you don't have to think. White over white, you're all right. Red over red, you're dead. This is how you do a glide slope, stuff like that. Um, so we were, we had a company, my favorite thing we had a little company we started in 1998 a long time ago and it was at the during the dot-com era and we were going to make home banking software so that you could bank at home on your pc now this is before they had we were even connected to the internet so you would put a disc in a computer now you had this wonderful program and you could organize all your finances and watch it all come out um if you were you know an anal compulsive accounting type person so um, but, and the banks all wanted it desperately because um, uh, Bill Gates had come out and said the banks are dinosaurs. The next day the banks were demanding that they have home software. There were products out there called uh, Microsoft Money. It's still out there. And Quicken. Now, each one of those had a 400-page manual. And we knew that no one read those manuals. And it was too complicated for 95% of their customers. It turns out that 95% of their customers never balanced their checkbook. And we knew that when, and when they buy Quicken, we would talk to people, 50% of the people that went to the store and bought Quicken or had all these great intentions, never took it out of the shrink wrap. It sat on their shelf forever. So we knew we had to make something easy. The banks wanted easy. We quickly found out though that, so we made a simple, simple thing. We quickly found out that the banks didn't want to talk to five guys in a taxi which is what we were as a little tiny company. They they big, huge banks. They like other big, huge corporations and big agencies. And they wouldn't listen to us. But what we did was we came up with four little microscripts that we sold with these little scripts because we found out they worked and they were memorable. And I'll tell you what they were. First of all, we named the product Home ATM because we said it's going to look like an ATM machine right on your computer that name was turned out to be magic because these bankers in those days didn't know anything about computers no one had cell phones nothing okay they said oh it's i i, I can i can understand that i could visualize that home atm then we said now mr banker you can put your you can have your atm in every home because what we did is we customized it so when they brought it up it looked like the little home atm screen they liked that too we said, it's so easy, it doesn't even have a manual. It doesn't even have one. And then we said, um, if you can use an ATM machine, you already know how to use this software. That's how easy it is. I said, do you know how to use an ATM machine? And he said, yeah. Does your wife have one? Yeah. Well, guess what? You know how to use our product. After those three little microscripts that two salespeople could repeat or 2,000 salespeople could repeat those same four little scripts, and after that, we never didn't get a meeting, because that banker that we talked to would say, I, "I get it, I like it, my boss is gonna like it," and he would he could tell his boss, <laughs> he could he could champion. So, the fact that he could remember and repeat these little things, those four scripts made that company eventually. Um, they sold it for several, many millions of dollars um, to a big company about five years later. But I, we think it was on the, on the strength of those things. So that that's how powerful they can be.
1: I think that's a, that's a powerful yeah. story, being able to mm-hmm. open doors. And I think one of the right. important things you brought up was usually, at, at least in a B2B environment, when you're selling something, mm-hmm. someone has to go tell a story to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And your point about it, it's they not do. what they hear, it's what they repeat. If mm-hmm. you don't give them that small little script to repeat, that guy is not going to go tell the next guy and then you're, de- you're dead in the water.
0: Well, and there's something else too. Um, you start to find out, you know, a lot of people talk about story nowadays. Stories are, are so critical. Um, I'm not trying to be glib here about stories. When you talk about a brand, you're always pretty much telling a little story to people. If you describe a brand, you're going to tell them a little bit of a story um there was a problem there's a solution oh you got to try this new product and then you're going to love it then you tell it i tried it someone else tried it it's really great but you're telling a little story when you do a testimonial to your friends i went to um there was i was giving a talk and one of the uh, i was going to talk about something that had to do with this airborne vitamin c powder that you could get at the drugstore and it supposedly helped from getting a cold You guys know Airborne. I should should
1: have taken that today. Yeah.
0: So Airborne was really famous. Now, Airborne, and it was a huge success, except it didn't work and then they got sued for $50 million. But they, (laughs) so you're not supposed to lie when you do this stuff. So I was kind of wanted to prove this theory. And um, because my daughters had come up to me and they say, oh, you got to get this stuff called Airborne. And then they give you basically a whole. They do the airborne commercial for you, which is the most powerful kind of -of word-of-mouth marketing like that is the the most powerful form of advertising and media there possibly is because a trusted person or a peer comes up to you and they do the commercial. They recommend it and you you like them and you trust them. So my daughter said, oh, you got to get airborne. They told me, you know what? You know, the stewardesses use it before they go on a plane so they don't get sick. It was invented by a second grade teacher because she was in the classroom all the time. It really, really works. Now, I remember they told me these little things. I went out, I saw the stuff. It shows, it's called Airborne. Interesting. It shows a little guy in a plane, a little cartoon plane. And then if you read the story online, we'll talk about how a second grade teacher who used to go and get sick all the time from little kids, invented, it. it's always in her kitchen sink, concocted this stuff to prevent colds. Now, I don't know what made her a molecular biology chemistry person, but still second grade teachers know how to do this in their sink. And people like second grade teachers. They think, you know, so the, the torture test was if a second grade teacher could invent this and not get sick, it's that's the ultimate germ laden environment everybody knows. So that was the first thing. And then they people start to say that, you know, the stewards has used use it on planes. And it had something to do with the, the, the name Airborne. And it turned out that airborne is what meant airborne pathogens it did not mean anything about airplanes the reason the company came up with the stewardesses using it on airplanes is because their customers thought it had something to do with that and we're and they were, were writing in to tell them about this and maybe so the company was smart enough to hear the microscripts coming from their customers and turning those around and using them now i go in the supermarket and there's a line of people and i walk up one after have you ever heard of airborne oh yeah I'd say, what is it? They'll tell, they gave you the whole elevator pitch. They said it was invented by a second grade teacher so she wouldn't get sick with the kids. It's so good that even on planes, again, being on a plane is a torture test, right? If you can prevent a cold on a plane, and also everyone knows that flight attendants know everything. And they told me one after another, after another, after another, told me those, the story in the microscripts. You realize, look what that's doing. So, I don't even know why, but that's that's an example of watching it happen in nature, right? Watch yeah. the power of it.
1: Well, yeah, that's that's an important point, I think, where yeah. you know sometimes you can actually pick up these microscripts mm-hmm. by trying to listen to people describe your product to somebody else.
0: They will give you. The, you, you think um, people aren't copywriters necessarily, but people have. If you listen to people, you'll get amazing golden nuggets. Either insights, wisdom, a little language place you never, ever thought of. So the best companies, they start, they put out what they think are going to be the microscripts. The, one, the only ones that are are the ones that people repeat. That's how you know it is a microscript. You can come up with all these great things. I knew the word microscript was a microscript. The one word can be my, because when I would talk to people around, sitting at a party, say five people standing around, within ten seconds, people were using the word back to me, talking about their own microscripts. Oh, I heard this microscript. I need micro. See, and I knew it was. I knew the word was a microscript word, and that's how you find out whether they are or not.
1: So let's talk about uh, some results that you've been able to achieve using <laughs> microscripts with, with clients. We've already talked uh, about the, the one company being sold for millions of dollars. Uh-huh. What, other, what other results uh, have you produced or that you feel comfortable sharing? Because I know you work in the secret world of branding and marketing.
0: Uh, yeah. Well, I came up with build the wall. No, no I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> The big, the big recent one in San Antonio, and the reason I came to San Antonio was because uh, um, this wonderful gentleman, Graham Weston, it turned out read one of my books and was very interested in branding. Went to work on his um, at Rackspace for, for him, um, helping the marketing department brand and then rebrand the company when um, it, it was going through the transition from. Um, computing that was done from data centers—you know, racks of computers on data centers—the transition to the cloud, and that was a very, very difficult time for a, a huge. It was a six thousand uh, employees around the world company. That was an example where we reframed. These aren't aren't really dramatic words, but the idea of a managed cloud was something that no one had talked about before. The managed cloud. Um, all people thought there was just the cloud. And the cloud was owned by Amazon, and they were 100 times bigger than anybody else in the world. And if Rackspace, even as big as they were, were going to compete with Amazon, Wall Street said they're going to they're die. They're gonna, it's done. They're the horse and buggy. And it's, it's amazing how fast that Wall Street can bid your stock down when they decide you're yesterday's thing. And um, what we had to do is reframe what Rackspace did and say, look, there's two kinds of cloud. Um, they say, we don't compete with Amazon, we're in a different business. And the minute that you reframe, now people want to listen. And we told a little story about how there's the commodity cloud, we framed both sides, the commodity cloud, which by the way, was good too because then the press started calling it the commodity cloud. I don't think they did before we kind of ceded it to the press. There was a commodity cloud uh, and that's great for lots and lots of companies, but for people who don't, who don't have big, huge IT departments who don't want to put their resources into a whole huge cloud operations because cloud's very complicated, very hard to scale. They want a cloud that comes with the experts to run it. They want a they want a lawn service, not just to buy a lawn tractor and cut the lawn themselves. And that made sense to people. They need something called the managed cloud. And the tagline then was the number one managed cloud company. That was that was just a big dramatic example of something that really, really worked. But we were using all these all the theories of microscripts that we knew um, look the home ATM example home ATM was sold for 150 million dollars which was a lot of money back then to a company called cybase um, so that one worked pretty darn well you know and there there are a lot of that, that's that's enough examples I mean there are a lot of there are a lot of companies around here I mean we could talk about merge VR and things but I'll leave it with that but it, it works <laughs> and you, and by the way whether I did it or not when you look back and you see all the great you know you go down the great taglines and things they're all written in microscript Wheaties Breakfast of Champions you know it takes a look in uh, the quicker picker upper what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas friends don't let friends drive drunk guns don't kill people people do Splenda um, it's made from sugar so it tastes like sugar pork it's the other white meat they just go on and on and on and on they work.
1: They do. And, mm. Bill, I want to thank you so much for being here today. Uh, if yeah. people want to find out more about who you are and what you do, where should they go?
0: Well, they can go to my My website is www.brandteam6, all one word, um, S-I-X at the end. So brand team 6 that's that's my, my agency, my business. But the best way to find out what I do is to go to Amazon and, and, and look up the microscript rules and honestly it's everything i it's actually more than everything i know and it's always written so that there was one book that you could get everything you needed to know about branding in about 150 pages let me also say that we would love if you find this interesting you can always learn more on the brand brothers our podcast with lorenzo gomez um we are um, we're on a mission from god to fight the evil forces of fake branding so you can have great branding. It's called the Brand Brothers, and it's wherever great podcasts are found.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Bill.
0: Action Path is a production of Geekdom Media in association with Gameday Media Enterprises. Executive producers are Lorenzo Gomez III, John Garcia, Jason Barrera, and Michael Largent. If you want access to summaries and takeaways from hundreds of business books, check out Steve's company, Read It For Me, at readitfor.me. That's readit4.me.